I'm just going to baskingly pretend that was all for me. Mm. Now, um, it's true I am here to introduce Nigella Lawson. I've written an introduction for Nigella Lawson. Uh, I'm about to read it out. It is 378 words long. It, it may be the most functionally redundant thing I have ever written uh, in my life. More unnecessary than a name tag reading Donald Trump. Or, uh, or the bit on the peanut packet that says, may contain traces of nuts. Unnecessary first because this is obviously a very, very famous person. And one who, moreover, would be immediately recognisable to you, even if you'd lost half of your senses. But unnecessary too, because Nigella Lawson is someone to whom each of us, I suspect, has already been introduced, each in our own completely subjective and unique way, through her books. It happened for me in 2004 when the tiny furnished basement flat that we rented in North London turned out to have a copy of How to Eat. A book that did for me what it did for millions of others, which is to say it swept me into the kitchen. Now it didn't force me or shame me into going there, but lured me there with an extraordinary charm and reassurance. Nigella Lawson's talent is partly a cooking thing, of course it is. And partly it's a visual thing, with its shiny ganaches and softly deliquescent ice creams and plates that have been lightly strafed with pomegranate and the particular gold of a properly roasted chicken. But mainly, mainly, it is a writing thing. And for all that is ever said or written about Nigella Lawson, we should never forget that her real genius is as a writer. She is a person who wrote for and spoke in the language of people who cook not to compete or dazzle or shock or win awards or achieve a new target BMI or to influence the intimate activity of the gut, but to love and nourish and bring pleasure. Her ability to ignite confidence and joy, shamelessness and hospitality in the hearts of others is, in my view, her particular gift. And I'm not sure it's necessary for me now to squander any more precious seconds on describing this lady when we are, just for one night here in the Sydney Opera House, gloriously equipped to hear her speak for herself. So I ask you to welcome her, the unmistakable Nigella Lawson. Introduction, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. I do have to warn you, obviously, it's a fabulously tough audience here tonight. Um, <laughs> you know, I think the tickets for this event sold out in about 14 seconds flat, so you shouldn't view these people as representative of your entire fan base in New South Wales or Australia. They're just the most prehensile fingered ones uh, with, the, with the bookings. So, uh, but welcome. Welcome to Sydney. Well, I love Sydney, and I have to say I feel, I was going to say childishly excited to be here, but I think actually, you know, hysterical with excitement. <laughs> um, 
you know, there are various things in life you never think will come to pass. And being on the stage of the Opera House in Sydney is one of them. And it's a, it's a thrilling, thrilling moment. I only wish I could sing. <laughs> Well, look, let's see how we get along, shall we? I mean, the choristers behind us might chip in or something. I feel that these poor people behind will just see a sort of mass of hair from both of us. So we'll try and do a bit of swivelling from time to yes, time. I can swivel like this quite easily. Perfect, perfect. Look, where does Australia stand for you on the scale of countries that are difficult to visit because you can't do anything without people stopping you. I mean, do you choose holiday locations on the basis of low cable television coverage, for instance? <laughs> I don't really think about it like that. I mean, I have to say that I always feel worried that everyone thinks I'm much more famous than I am. I find it very, very easy to walk around the streets um, unmolested. And um, I, I mean, being short-sighted has always helped, but also one of... But, no, but I, what I There's so much say, you don't know. But, but what I will say is this as well, which is I think... For certain people, it might be tiresome, but there's something about writing about food is that one, you know, the people who are interested in that are the sort of people I like speaking to. Mm. And the other is there is a sense, I think maybe because I write in my voice and when I do television programs, I'm not scripted, people sort of have an idea of who I am. And it, I don't feel it's like a starry thing. It's much more about... Uh, sharing things. People will talk to me about the food they eat. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm a very, very nosy person, so I'm always going to find <laughs> out. Uh, I, I, you know, obviously, people only ever want to take photographs when I haven't got any makeup on and my hair's dirty. But I, or when you're wearing a long but, line bathing you know, suit at Sydney. Uh, you know, quite. Oh, my burkini. Yes, I know. Yeah, but the Everyone point, was thrown. Uh, it looked better on, really, I promise. <laughs> um, but the thing is, the thing is, I... My, in many things, you know, my laziness is much greater than my vanity, so I'd rather walk around looking like that. And actually, you know, it's a normal thing to do. I don't, people don't seem to mind when I talk to them, looking, you know, quite unspeakable. So, uh, so I, I think it, it's not... I mean, it's, it's certainly not, not like being a politician when everyone hates you. Mm. And it's <laughs> not like being a pop star when people are hysterical and so that really I, I feel that talking about food, writing about food is a conversation, so it's only right and proper that that conversation is continued wherever it can be. You said a second ago that you're very lazy, and you know, you, you mention this in most of your books and repeatedly throughout mm. your television programs, and I think you seem very unlazy to me. I have you're a theory. Frenetically busy, obviously. I, yeah. so I have work? a theory about life, which you can challenge if you would like, uh, which is that... The people who often work the hardest are naturally the laziest. Right. Because we know that unless we really kind of drove ourselves, we would be very happy, you know, lying in bed, reading novels, drinking cups of tea, uh, eating toast, uh, the odd bowl of spaghetti, maybe even a roast chicken. But nevertheless... <laughs> But never, nevertheless, that, you know, in a sense, I, I feel that I have two speeds, which is uh, full pelt or sort of almost comatose. So is it like I, that I thing? Don't, I, I never, I'm, not, I'm never moderate in my activity. That is 
Fascinating. So, so is it like that old saying about inside a plump person is a, is a slender person battling to get out? So inside your frenetically busy person is a very indolent one wanting to have a sit down. But the, I won't sit down, lie down. All right. Um, but, but, and, and I indulge that person often. How much do you really eat in bed? Do you really eat in bed a lot? Yes. Do I eat or... Did you say eat... Eat, eat in, in yes. bed. I'm sorry, Australians. I do. Who was it that once described the Australian accent, accent as a collection of speech defects? I'm sorry. <laughs> I apologise. No, no, no. I just couldn't hear as eat or read. Yes. They're, they're very similar words. No, but... but Not more interested in eating. Well... Well, both. So both. Yes, I do. Um, especially at the weekends mm. when I do, I go down and I do cook. I cook for myself, and I enjoy that. And occasionally, I do sit at a table, and I feel immensely pleased with myself. <laughs> and then, more often than not, I just take, drag my food back to my cave. And um, a friend of mine, who is much more proper than I am, she said to me once. Without a tray, <laughs> and it's certainly true that I do, and I do keep um, by the side of my bed, because my bedroom's not on the same floor as the kitchen, so by the side of my bed, I have learnt um, to keep uh, a little collection of condiments. <laughs> <laughs> I, it's not meant to be funny, it's very helpful. So mustard, I assume, because English you're a... mustard, mm. mould and salt. Quite right, or a bit crunchy in the bedclothes, but yes. Uh, yeah, I know, but that can be lived with. You know, unsalted sure. food is worse. Sure. Yeah. And um, <laughs> although I, I do take uh, the, you know that fabulous pink salt home every time <gasps> I come here. Oh, that's very the Murray soft. River. That's it's very yeah, the Murray River salt. Mm. That's very soft. And I also have. I have Tabasco, although I don't always know whether Tabasco is the right sauce. And I have, um, as well, a, a kind of thicker chilli sauce, hot right. sauce, mm. plus soy sauce. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the ridiculous thing is I am very, I really, one of my great luxuries um, is that I like very expensive and gorgeous bed linen. And then I ruin it by, <laughs> you know, dolloping soy sauce all over it. Yeah. There is probably a business model based entirely on you in the Manchester world, I assume. <laughs> Look, now seems the right time for me to ask, because it's something I've always wanted to ask you. Um, do you have any sort of secret ingredients of shame that you love using, even though they're a bit embarrassing? I ask because I really, every now and again, I don't mind a spoonful of curry powder in something, and I love a tin smoked oyster, even though I know it's wrong. Oh, I, I have absolutely no shame about any ingredient I use that is not considered, um, you know, exactly top drawer. And I've always been very open about it. I use chicken stock from Concentrate, and I've always made that clear in my books. Um, Ni <laughs> Nigel Slater, who you may know, calls me the queen of the frozen pea, mm. an accolade. I would defend a frozen pea Yes, I defend a frozen pea. I have also been known to use tinned mushy peas. Ooh. Um, yes, you see, which is really, you only have to open a can, the amount of food colouring in them. Yes. I mean, it's, it's as if they were concocted um, on The Simpsons, you know, in that part. Um, Where do you stand on the tinned mandarin segment? I mean, not directly on well, top, obviously. Well, you know, the thi I've never... I've used tinned peaches mm. in a cake uh, and tinned pears. Mm. Um, 
But tinned mandarin segments remind me of childhood. So I have a fondness for them, but I don't get them very often. But now you've planted that seed. Well, the thing that puzzles me about them is because I've used them on tops of tarts and things, yeah. and also in little compotes when I can't be yes. bothered peeling the membrane. I have never I'm... peeled. But a you have to if you want to do a compote that looks all pretty, because otherwise it's all membraney. Yes. And what talking of business models? How is it worth anyone's while to peel 30 mandarin segments and enclose them in a tiny tin and sell them for 50p? I, don't I think we know that it, it, it involves, you know, enormous exploitation, and we should avo avoid yes, mandarin right. segments on those yeah. grounds alone. I'm not. Right. Very, I mean, really, yeah. if you think about it. Um, I think we're making uh, some real social progress so here. I no, I'm. But geez, the terrible thing is, is that I have a terribly, well, no secret, but I have a very camp kitsch side. Therefore, sometimes if I feel an ingredient is really disgusting and everyone thinks it is very low rent, I feel compelled to use it. And then after a while, I think, you know, I'm not sure if I like this, but I, you know, really, I, I, I can't stand the sneerers. I'd no. rather be sneered at. And you love a pun as well. I must say, I'm completely thrilled by Jackson Pollock in your new book, which is, you know, Pollock is this sort of... Fish. It's a fish. And it's they renamed it, didn't they, for a while, because Pollock sounded so uninspiring. I know, they renamed it. Well, obviously, they tried to name it in French, but, of course, in English, it doesn't work, which is Colin. Colin. It's like calling off fish high, you know... So delicious-sounding, though. Colin. Um, which is also quite confusing, because I think it, there's a part in the Loire when it suddenly means... Hake or something, so it changes. Yeah. But anyway, so Pollock is very—it's um, a sustainable fish that we have a lot of. It's not—I don't know. It's you know, it's, it doesn't. It's not one of those fishes that you know you you grill lightly and then put a bit of extra virgin olive oil and just the merest bit of salt. No, no, no. And Which is so, why you made a painting out of it. So <laughs> I thought, because of the painter Jackson Pollock, I had to do it, so I, I, I created a recipe for it, just really, it is good, just so that I could, then I made a, a bit of spinach sauce and I made a charred red pepper sauce, charred red peppers out of a jar. And so then I could daub it and spray it and make it look like a painting. And actually, I did look at a painting, I did look at a painting, but to see which like, model on that painting or not, then I thought I was really going, you know, <laughs> too far beyond. Um, yes, I like, a, I, like a, I like a culinary pun as well. So I've got a, a sweet potato macaroni cheese, which may I just say works surprisingly well, and I add feta, so you have that sourness mm. and saltiness to counter the, that, that rich sweetness of the potato. But what I really love about it is that when you see it photographed or when it comes to the table, it looks like it's plastic from a packet because it's such a bright orange, and yet... It is the earthy goodness of a sweet potato, and I like that. So in the same way as I've, I've got a recipe for pasta snails in garlic butter, because really when you eat snails in France, the best thing is that parsley garlic butter. So I thought I may as well use the snails, but I like that idea of, as I say, visual a culinary pun. pun, a visual pun, a culinary pun, and I have to stop myself every now and then. <laughs> have you ever discarded anything because it's too silly along those lines? I wish I could say I have, but I'm afraid there's, <laughs> there's documentary evidence of all my excesses. <laughs> Now, you have a new book out, Simply Nigella, and your new series that goes along with it. And in Britain, of course, the series became unshakably controversial straight away. I speak, of course, of the great avocado on toast scandal of 2015. <laughs> 
Avocado Gate. Yeah, Avocado Gate. Well, yes, it did, and yes, it didn't, in the sense that um, when I was in journalism, uh, when anything happened, you, we would have a saying. And this, I don't know if it, 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 I hasten to add it was broadsheet journalism. Um, you know, twice. If you notice something twice, it's a coincidence. Three times, it's, three times it's a feature. Mm. And I think these days, if there are three tweets showing uh, yeah. horror, it becomes a tabloid sensation. And I, in my first program, introduced avocado toast, saying, "Look, this isn't a recipe, but it's something I love eating." And I did a few things with it, and then it was like, "A oh, recipe for avocado toast? How? Oh, you know, this is the most terrible thing ever." Um, that is in my book, but only because I've done the recipe for some pickled radishes to go with it, because I, I, I feel this great need to pickle at the moment. Mm. Um, I asked a Greek friend of mine, well, you know, I said to him, I just, I just can't stop pickling in it, everything. And, um, <laughs> it must be a Latin term and for I, that. No, well, he's Greek, so I said, what would it be in Greek, you know, just like, you know, all conditions or something, mania? And he said, torsomania. So I am a torsomaniac. That sounds fine. It, so yeah. in that sense, so there have been those sort of, so there, to, to me, I find them slightly like, false outrage. Right, yeah, I'd accept but, that. But the avocado know. has some funny properties, doesn't it? I mean, did you see that um, huge debacle that happened quite recently in the uh, US where the New York Times tweeted... Um, a simple recommendation that people should put peas in excuse their guacamole. Excuse me, excuse me. I oh, had that recipe in Nigella Express many, many years ago. I didn't like to say that at the and time. And they didn't And, you. no, 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 so the, the New York Times didn't even have originality on its side. Oh, my God. And I have to say, I did use tin mushy peas for it. Oh, no. <laughs> Are the readers of the New York Times aware? They must be, but the you've got a column New, there the for... New, for the New York Times, and I say that as an erstwhile columnist mm. of the New York Times, and you know, I love their food pages, but nothing exists beyond the New York Times. Mm. That's fine. That's the way it should be. It's a holy temple. <laughs> uh, yes, people were outraged. And the president then, was, was obliged to, uh, to, to weigh in on this debate about whether there should be peas in guacamole. I can't remember which way you think it's sensible to comment on what happens in America? No, really? not at all. But I mean... Really? They go so crazy. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> that is a fair but, call. But, but, you, but, uh, but they go crazy about food there, particularly with politicians. I mean, yes. there was, I mean, there was this sort of widespread fear of the oppression of Michelle Obama, who was growing vegetables at the White House, and that she was I dominating everybody and forcing their children to eat kale. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, the, the thing is that people do feel very... I, I can understand that, in a way, guacamole is a particular... Mm. is a, you know, a, a particular recipe, and I suppose you know, fiddling around with it might seem disrespectful. I mean, I quite like it, and I have, uh, can I recommend it to you? There's, I have a version, do you know I'm going to say rocamole? I know what you're going to say. You're going to say rocamole? I'm going to say brocamole. No, I've got brocamole oh. now, but I have also got a, one version um, which adds blue cheese, which is called rocamole for obvious oh, reasons. God. And during the World Cup once, I had to do a version called socamole. <laughs> Still at the puns, they carry on. However, yes, the brocamole, which... Um, I love it, which adds broccoli. But, but, but in a sense, I think that people were... I, I think that America does have a tradition of commenting on food as well. That mm. Wasn't there a... Which 
Which politician, was it uh, Bush who once said that he didn't like broccoli and there was a huge thing as all the broccoli farmers? So then that had to be dealt with. And, and then Obama said that he really liked rocket and then he had, or arugula as arugula. they call it there, and then he had to go and ritually eat every other form of lettuce because yes. he'd offended the non-posh ones. And then, <laughs> but my favourite of all time is John Kerry who went to Philadelphia and he ordered a uh, Philly cheesesteak, which is this... Hellish concoction of mm -hmm. sort of squirty meat stuff with, um, mm. and it's traditionally served with something called cheese whiz, yes. which is an aerosol cheese because, of course, of yes. course. And he asked for it with Swiss cheese instead, and he was in so much trouble that he had to go back and eat ten of them with the squirty cheese yes. just to get back on top in Philadelphia. But you know, but in a sense, you must, as you know. Uh, Politicians also often do use food in a way to show uh, they uh, are people who are just like everyone else. We have a prime minister who ate an onion raw on television. <laughs> it didn't yeah. work that way for him. You know, so it didn't work that way. No, but no. you know what I mean. So I think that does happen a lot, and I think that maybe. I'm trying to think whether, whether that, um, that sort of thing could happen in the UK. Well, we had a bit of an outcry once. I don't think we... I mean, we, don't, we could spend the whole time talking about uh, both peas, bushy peas and, and avocado. But this I'm going to let her run This is my last. Yeah. This is my last comment <laughs> on the subject. Um, this, I'm sure this didn't happen, but there's an apocryphal story that Peter Mandelson, as you know, who was mm. in many ways considered the... Uh, the, the, the spin doctor, sort of mm. the, the thought... The architect of New Labour went to the north, was in the north where, you know, fish and chips and mushy peas are the thing, and apparently said, you have fish and chips and can I have some of that guacamole? And there was a huge outcry then. I'm sorry, didn't, but so, oh, may, so maybe it was ever thus. Well, look, the thing is, though, you see, all your writing um, and broadcasting about food is, I think, premised very deeply on the idea of not making a fuss. You know, you're not a terrible fusser. And yet people do fuss about food, don't they? I mean, they, they fuss when a classic recipe has been interfered mm. with. There's a current um, uh, and developing, I think, pattern of people um, worried about the idea of cultural appropriation. Yes. You know, when there's sort of... Um, university orientation weeks where they serve tacos in the United States mm. and get cross about it. And, and it's... It's awkward, isn't it? Because when you, when you borrow a dish from another culture, mm. you're borrowing something quite precious to that culture. But then the tradition of food is that it then kind of becomes yours a bit to do as you like with. Yes, well, what I think is, is that f food is very much like language. Mm. And if you... It can only carry on if it's living. And I think that, you know, the French, for example, codify language very stringently and also have a, very much a notion of, you know, these are traditional foods and you mustn't change them. But the difficulty is that isn't really how people live. And you, you, you can um, decry neologisms as much as you like, or uh, perhaps that food has become, as it has in France, too Italianified, they don't like that. But the difficulty is, it's futile to try and stop it because language develops as it will, in, and so does cooking, because the, the truth is that usage dictates development. I mean, it, it is to try and make the rules, to make rules govern people's behaviour, is to misunderstand 
um, what a wonderful live unfurling thing language is and food is. And of course, food and language also do uh, political and that's social history. So as people travel or um, as people understand more about different ingredients and spice roots made a big difference and the fact that now food is carried by aeroplane and what food is accessible to certain groups of people and what to others. All this makes a big difference to how we cook and eat. And I do think in a way that, in a way that um, there's a great misunderstanding in, in food about authenticity. And I think there's not always some, you can't trace everything back to one recipe somewhere and anything that deviates from that recipe is inauthentic. Mm. And uh, I think that it is, I think the thing is, I understand it, I think human beings are essentially tribal, therefore um, a, a food belongs to a certain tribe, even if it's just the people in one street. Um, um, you know, for example, I'm in England, you know, that there's huge arguments going on when you have scones, whether you should have the cream first or the jam first. And, oh, that's a um, sensible display. And uh, you know, if you're from Devon, and both in the West Country, if you're from Devon, I believe then you would put the cream first and then the jam, and in Cornwall they put the jam first and then the cream. Now this matters an awful lot. As I say, it's tribal. Which it way do you swing? Well, I'm afraid to say, although I am more Cornish, than Devonian. <laughs> I do the cream first, because in my mind, it's much... <laughs> Would you like to hear why? <laughs> it's because, to me, well, clotted cream, I mean, look, I don't mind it go before and after, as far as I can say, I love it such a lot. But the reality is that, for me, it's... It's really like a version of butter, and you put it on the what is really like a quick bread, and then you put the jam on. And also, it's I know you're shaking your head, but it's much better. Um, that it to me, so I've always done that, and that's another thing. Um, it, it is about what one's always done, and it's much easier to put the jam on top. And you put the jam first, and then you try and put the cream on, you drag the jam, whereas the cream is heavier. See, I am exactly the other way. Well, quite. So, in all these things, in these things, it's <laughs> in all these things, it's not about right or wrong. We should let our own tastes dictate how we eat and what we eat. So, it, it, it really, you know, obviously, some people get very irate and they feel that that matters. And well, it does. But what matters much more is you you eat the way you you like eating. I think. So. What do you think your tribal food is? I mean, do you have one? I mean, you were raised with lots of European cooking and mm -hmm. um, sort of Jewish tradition. And then you spent some time in Italy, of course, um, romantically as a chambermaid, eating vats of pasta and so on. And you're obviously very influenced by that time. Yes, I was. But I think, I think for me, it's the chicken is central, as it is in a way uh, for so many people in so many different ways and in different cultures. And in particular, what, you know, roast chicken I, is for me 
something that is so basic that I mean I always have to have a chicken ready to roast and it you know uh, on the my mother, table. <laughs> <laughs> well, my mother always roasted. I mean, she, we did, there were lots of us, so it's not quite as as terrible as my mother always roasted two chickens, mm. one to eat then and one to have cold. She couldn't bear the idea of not having cold chicken in the house. And she would always cut a lemon, put the lemon inside the cavity of the chicken and smear it with butter. I've, I now prefer oil, olive oil, not extra virgin olive oil, of course. Um, and uh, some salt, and I like that, and, uh, sometimes with garlic and anything else that goes with it. And, but really for me, I think my, the food that is my family language uh, is a, a chicken that's cooked on, a, on the hob in a pot with vegetables that I call my mother's praised chicken. It's, it's halfway between uh, poached and braised, and you know, I always say it's cooking it and eating it is like an act of devotion and, and, and that's the aroma smell. as well that, that smell and um, very very much not a um, f food stuff for the Instagram age but unphotogenic <laughs> food is often the most delicious and, I, and, and in a way I, I love it mm. and um, I cook a lot and have done forever and it's our family food but this is one way in which I think food matters and home cooking matters which is my mother died young and it's a way that my children can taste her food mm. and that seems to me to be behind so much of the of what is very potent and, and poignant in, in families everywhere and you've made that recipe oh quite quite I was just going to make the point that that recipe is a soup in your new cookbook, which I well, haven't made for my more. children I, yet. Yeah, so it's but it's that, that concept. And you mentioned, again, leaning down on the chicken until its bones are broken. Yes, I like it. Something a, that you really... I like, a bit, I like a bit of surgery. Yes. But I don't have any knife skills, so I have to do it by brute force. Right. <laughs> no, but, but uh, yes, yeah, so that was a recipe that was in kitchen, mm. but I've done a version of it, but it is so... In a sense, I've taken my mother's recipe, but done something which she would have had no time for, really far too many you know different ingredients but i uh, and added lots of uh, flavors from that i've got from my chinese supermarket and i love and i and i love that and in fact that seems to me what cooking is about that you just change some of the flavors and you just take it where you want to go and you're a great anywhere. um you're a great holiday recruiter aren't you um a traveling recruiter of ideas i love that um that unusual recipe for the cinnamony noodles that mm. that um you picked it's up cool. in thailand you talked about um getting this guy who made it for you to make it again and again and again while you took notes and finally I, videoed actually, it. Actually, <laughs> I didn't take notes. I videoed it very badly and I had to be on holiday too with the documentary filmmaker and she said, you have to have the phone on landscape when you make a film. Oh no, so you've got a torso um, and nothing happening. I do, because I think, in a way, I just wanted to see what he did and, and, and watch and do it because I knew as well that... I mean, here, actually, you could cook it exactly as I ate it in Thailand. You've got wonderful fresh prawns and a lot. the ingredients you have are much more similar. However, I knew I had to watch what he did and I'd eaten it a lot so I could remember the taste. But I needed to make it 
at home in a London kitchen with the ingredients that are available to me. So, you know, frozen prawns, for example. Um, and mushy but peas. But it still works, and I didn't get those in. I'm not, <laughs> I'm, I'm not such a heathen. Um, I know. But, but we did have that is interesting. You know, that is, I am, I do that. And when, in the old days, you know, when you had to get, when you had to get your... Um, camera in, take the film out and give it to the <laughs> chemist to develop. It was always so embarrassing because I had like one or two of my children and everything else was a tomato stall in Florence <laughs> and everything I ate. Whereas at least now, even though I am that very annoying person who says, no, no, don't touch it yet. I haven't photographed it. I do that nonstop. Nevertheless, at least I don't have to, you know, shame myself at the pharmacy. Now, uh, we have had a number of questions through on social media, which I've been just... Yep. Greedily and self-centredly withholding from you, but it does seem like a good opportunity to ask mm -hmm. Sheridan Pierce's question. She uh -huh. says, you mentioned in Nigella Feasts that when you travel overseas, instead of buying souvenirs like a tourist, you prefer to go to the local grocers and supermarkets. Mm -hmm. What Australian food items have caught your eye whilst you've been here? I don't know if you've even got to any. Um... No, I haven't, but I was on MasterChef for a while and I went into the, kitchen, into the test kitchen. It mm. <laughs> was lots of suddenly very lot of bulky things <laughs> underneath my shirt. Um, well, in terms of... I mean, I've already told you, not only Swiping did I take... the 10 network is not a crime. It's perfectly <laughs> fine. Um, not only did I take some uh, Murray River pink salt, but I also took some wonderful Tasmanian salt. Mm. Um, but the other two ingredients are not Australian, but I've never come across them out of Australia, and they seem to be very much in vogue at the moment, was coconut vinegar and white soy sauce. Mm. Yeah, so that's interesting. Oh, good. Well, I look forward to that recipe. Um, <laughs> what, just quickly... Being a judge on MasterChef, I mean, it's not the first cooking show you've been a judge on, but you seem very non-judgmental in your writing and your broadcasting. How tricky is it to suddenly just put the boot in to people who have done, made a bad custard or something? Well, I've never taken part uh, as a judge uh, in a cooking show that was that sort of uh, theatre of cruelty, right. humiliation. It's always been when the food is discussed, not, mm. you know, any person's shortcomings. And also, I do try and be the, you know, the sort of, I don't know what I would say, sort of simpery smiler and encourager. <laughs> um, but I, I, I like encouraging. I mean, I, I find it, I mean, where the difficulty is, in a way, is that I am judging people's cooking when I know I couldn't do that. However, um, I feel, you know, less people are forced on those programs against their will, I don't feel too bad. But as I say, I couldn't do, I couldn't go on a program where the idea was to humiliate anyone or talk in any personal terms. I think, I think actually, when, if you're talking about why you think something worked or why you think it didn't, and you can be quite precise mm. and actually talk about whether you think that there was a, but, but there wasn't enough balance of texture or whether it was undersalted or whether perhaps it, it was too concept-led. Mm. Uh, so I think that is perfectly all right because you're trying to do it in a way how you think it could be done. But what's also interesting is that judges often don't agree. So what people also learn about this is that tastes are very subjective. And while that might be confusing, 
it is also exactly how things are, that it's a miracle, really, that any one person can write a recipe that someone else cooks and likes eating. Because not only our taste subjective is that what we're learning more and more is that the way our taste buds are varies so enormously from person to person, this new thing about whether you're a super taster or not and all that. I'm a super taster at all. Mm-hmm. I well, think I'm a super, a super I think it's... It worries me, that I thing. think it depends also, everyone varies a lot on the bitter-sweet spectrum. So I love bitter tastes because, I, I, you know, I, I, to me they have a wonderful taste. And that may well be because I don't taste them in, in the same way. As we know, that children, when they don't like broccoli, it's also because it, it tastes so much more intense to children. You know, they have many more taste buds and they just, like everything else, they just start fading. Yeah, also broccoli's in the memo that they all get, you know, (laughs) along with Brussels sprouts and... you never know. Do you remember when you had that recipe for, um, uh, I think it was chicken liver um, and and dried apricots? That was was way back, wasn't it? That was in, how do we, that was in such a bossy chapter um, as one is because every book I do is about where I am in my life at that time and so that I did have a chapter (laughs) on how to eat which was on weaning and feeding um, (laughs) infants and toddlers you see my partner went out and invested heavily in chicken livers based on the recipe and an inordinate amount of quite expensive Australian sun-dried apricots and made about a kilo of this puree yeah, but getting a kilo when you I know, know you it was a lot. T- babies have very small. And tummies. it is now a story. Is it still in the freezer? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> it's not bad, you know. No, but the thing is, is that, yes. that but the, the advice I gave in that I still hold by, which mm. is that I gave you know all these various, I, and also you have to get them in very young. Yes, yes. with okay. the liver particularly, I find. Yes, I think we missed our. But um, you know, but but, but you window. know, but babies are people. They have their own taste buds. They like certain mm. things more than they like others, but they change quite a bit. So, also, it can be quite traumatic when you're rejected by you know uh, uh, by a baby. So maybe you don't try again. But <laughs> what I was writing about as well is that, especially if uh, I think if you've nursed your baby yourself then you're used to being its food source. Quite hard to relinquish that, I find, Mm -hmm. and start having and cooking. But I felt that I never wanted... I was brought up in a very old-fashioned way where you were forced to eat everything on your plate, and if you didn't, it would be brought back cold at the next meal. And um, therefore, I never wanted to do that. uh, So I found that the tension of a child not liking the food, a baby not liking a food... uh, a lot it was much easier if I cooked everything in advance and then froze it in ice cube trays mm. because then the, all that effort, that love that had gone into it was quite divorced from the meal itself. Oh, right. So by Already the time the I sat mm. down to eat that, I wasn't thinking I'd been here pureeing apricots <laughs> and li- chicken livers all morning and now you don't like it. So I found that very helpful. So I just wanted to pass that on. It's interesting to know that about how to eat, which I, you know, as I said, found a very influential book. But it, I mean, you can trace these phases in your life from mm. reading your cookbooks and, and the things that you're obsessed with and the ingredients that just yes. crop up again and again. Yes, and again. See, I was told, yeah, a friend, friend of mine calls it the pea, rhubarb and marsala cookbook. <laughs> 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 I approve of all of those things, fortunately, for me. But um, what, how does 
what's that? I mean, this is, what, your tenth cookbook now, this new one? I know, it's so strange, isn't it? So, I suppose it seems very natural to you, but I guess people who crack it open have their thoughts about mm. what phase you're in and whether they mm. love it or not, and... Um, I wonder how you manage that as a writer, people's expectations. And I guess, you know, Avocado Gate, which we all agree was not uh, a gate at all, um, is, is, is an angle of that, I suppose. Yes. Pe what people expect of you. Are you affected by that? No, I'm not, because I think then it, one step near to that is thinking, oh, what could I do that would be different? And I feel in a way, people often say to me, how is this book different from your other books? And I always go... It's not very different. <laughs> yeah, not really. And I don't know, because in a way, it's still my voice and it's still the way I like cooking. But there are different approaches or different things are highlighted, I, I suppose. And I do find I use ingredients over and over again. One of the reasons why I also repeat ingredients in my books, certain ingredients within, in recipes, is that... if I have to go to the shop to buy something in particular, I... I don't want to go to the shops in vain. I so if I've bought something, mm -hmm. I want to find other uses for it. So I do give, you know, I will, I will bring it out again and again. And I, and I like those ingredients, you know, a lot of Chinese rice wine, um, sake, always have to have that. And you, you buy a bottle of sake, you want to know how it can be used elsewhere. But there's, it's certainly true that, you know, you, you know, you have found me in very much a caramelised garlic and sweet potato <laughs> mood. And um, there's a lot of that going on. And did that just come out of nowhere or just felt like a caramelised garlic kind of a year? Well, I used to do it, you know, years ago. Mm. You know, that's one thing of, you know, getting to a certain age. It's, it's just like, you know, I wore platforms the first time around. And, uh, well, actually, no, the first time around, I would have made it in the 40s or in the 14th century. So, anyway, I wore them in the 70s and now I wear them again now in the same way as uh, there was a lot of garlic caramelisation going on um, in the early 90s. And I suddenly just thought, God, I just can't believe I haven't done that again. And I suppose also, you know, as I say, everything is about age and stage. And now I'm older, I've... It's so awful to say. Now I'm older, I find raw garlic harder. <laughs> and so I like that sweetness and richness and the velvetiness you get from roasting it. And also that I, I think that... There is something, maybe it's, I always feel it's like a, my atavistic refugee mentality, which means like, for example, if I go to a restaurant that I won't ever give my coat in because I know I have to be ready to run at any moment. I don't have to wait <laughs> to get my coat back. Um, and also, I feel that I feel much more secure in a house that has food that's been cooked and ready to go. So I roast sweet potatoes, oh. I know I've got a soup there. I roast caramelised garlic and I know I can just add it to anything and it'll... T a lot of flavour, although can I recommend if, if we're too scarred by avocado gate that just caramelising a whole, a whole head of garlic and then squeezing it out onto oh, that's nice. some toasted sourdough and then adding some sea salt, parsley if you want. Um, Yum. Also, other, what I do is I do that and then I chew the parsley after because my grandmother always taught me that eating parsley mm. gets rid of the smell of garlic and if you rub it on your hands or eat it and then you won't go into the office and just blow everyone's heads off. <laughs> but I think that's, frankly, I think that whole garlic fear comes from an earlier age when garlic seemed like foreign food, whereas actually it's a perfectly nice smell. Mm. 
I mean, it doesn't translate into that. No, sorry, yeah. I wasn't but saying I can't do, because I was but not I, as approved. I say, so I'm, 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 raw garlic, it's just like I, I, I don't eat raw onions unless I've macerated them in either vinegar or lime juice when they become that glorious mm. puce. But mm. it's also just actually because, it's not just because I think oh, it's, it's my new trick, it's because otherwise I, don't, I can't eat them anymore. Mm. So getting old has many benefits. <laughs> You come across new, you can, you develop new ideas. You're not convinced, but it's true. <laughs> now, people think of you, obviously, as a food writer and as a, a writer of cookbooks, but I mean, you've written about many other things over the course of your career, mm -hmm. and you've been a literary editor, you've been an opinion columnist. Mm -hmm. Do you ever run out of opinions? Uh, I run well, out of opinions sometimes. Well, I, I knew it was time to to stop really once when I thought, I know I've written on this subject before, I just can't remember which side I took. <laughs> <laughs> I always felt it was a bit like, this is something that you, you might not have much experience of here because it's a different climate, but when you build a fire and you start, you have to you put a bit of kindling and it's a bit pathetic and you get the bellows and you go like that and the whole fire erupts and I felt that being an op-ed columnist sometimes was like having a, a little German idea that you felt could be true, might not be true, but you thought maybe there was something in it. Then you took the bellows and it became this absolutely strongly held conviction <laughs> over 1,100 words. There's an obligation words. to be shouty, isn't there? It and, feels like um, there is, particularly in the 8 to 1,100 word format. I think. Yes, yes. I, th I feel that. But I, and um, when I was on maternity leave, I say maternity leave, obviously it was... Uh, if you're a columnist, I don't know what that means. It just means you're, you decide not to write a column for a while. I remember John, my uh, late husband. It's not that you get paid for it. Um, and he, after two months, he, after because I'd harangue him, which I'd be reading the newspaper. It's absolutely, you know, just giving him my views about everything that was happening. He said, "I think you should, I think you should go back to work." <laughs> Did your past as a shouter make you feel but I, but more tolerant when people shout at you or about you? I completely it understand just... it. I get it mm. completely. When I do, I feel that um, I tried not. I mean, as I say, I wasn't a tabloid columnist, so I don't think I was. I don't feel I was rabble rousing and that sort of shouting. <laughs> they never but do. I, but I think I overstated the case, or sometimes oversimplified it, or sometimes talked myself into an opinion that maybe afterwards I thought, yeah, yeah, but, you know. Um, not always, but just after, you know, maybe after five years. But I liked it because I, there's something very exciting, I think, about uh, really living off your wits. You know, if you don't have an idea, you're not going to, you're not going to get paid. You're not going to pay the mortgage and that sort of thing. And I found that, the fear of that, rather galvanising. But I guess people would feel that same way about writing a cookbook, wouldn't they? I mean, I, I do, you know, of course. It, it, because it is the same. It is the same, but it, it, it's, it's the same, but one is, is given a subject. Mm. And somehow you have to create your own subject when writing a column. And the most thrilling form of that once was when I... Um, had a column appearing on, I think it was something like Boxing Day, day after Christmas, and I had to, there were no, in those days, it had to be, you know, things were typeset, you would send it in, and that wasn't going to work, so I had to phone up the copy takers oh, yeah. and phone it through, and I knew if I didn't do that, there'd be a hole in the paper. That was thrilling. A white space that I had to Did fill. you go to a phone box and wear one of those hats? Uh, yeah, I did, it? and a Mac. <laughs> No, but it, a grubby so, Mac. So I do think, but the, 
but I, I think that the, the difference, the, there is a difference, because you are oblige, you're, you're very reactive mm. as a columnist. So necessarily, it has to be, it has to be topical. Whereas, and even though, in a way, of course, you're still talking about things you can feel very strongly about, that you. You have to write a column. If you're writing a weekly column, you have to write it whether you feel strongly or not. Uh, but I, if I don't feel I've got the recipes in me or the ideas in me, I don't do a book. You just go you know, to bed with I'd a bowl left, of I left bolognese. it three years, you know, gap before <laughs> doing this one, because I, I, I didn't feel just, you know, I, don't, I didn't want to churn it out to, to a degree you have to churn it out if you're a columnist. Mm. When I say to a degree, you just absolutely have to. But you hope you can bring some elegance of thought or s some, uh, some, you know, grasp at the truth as you see it. But it doesn't mean to say you always succeed. Do you think you'll ever get to the end of food as a writer and have another change? There may well be a time when, you know, people are fed up with it, but I certainly enjoy it. I mean, in, in many ways, I sometimes think it's a, a self-indulgence because I do enjoy it a lot. Um, I don't know. I had no idea I'd ever, ever um, have a career related to food in any way. So I don't know what I might do next. I can I can imagine it, but I but I think I would it, in some sense it would take more of an act of discipline to make myself stop mm -hmm. than anything else. Was it? I mean, it's it, in retrospect a, a sort of a tremendous thing that you did to um, move into uh, writing about food and then publishing a cookbook. Um, the great restaurantification of the world has. Uh, increasingly demanded that you know that that chefs are the experts and that the qualification to comment on food or to create food is somehow um, associated with hard graft in some clanking commercial kitchen. But what you did was um, was bring home cookery um, to the fore, and I wonder if that was a struggle for you. I know I know people, uh, women particularly, I'm afraid, often struggle with the idea of qualification mm. to declare themselves qualified. And I, I, wrote, I read a fabulous response that you made once to somebody who, some critic who disagreed with one of your restaurant columns mm. early days, and said, well, "What's your qualification to be a restaurant reviewer?" And you said, "My qualification is that somebody is prepared to pay me to do it." Which I thought was a kind of a magnificent response. Well, I also felt, and I really did, when I was a restaurant critic, I mean, that was probably a slightly obnoxious way of putting it, but what I felt very strongly was that my job was not to represent the chef, but to represent people who might be thinking about, was it going to be worth their going to that restaurant and spending their money there? What would it be like? And I once had a, uh, did have a spat with someone who said, you're not trained, you don't understand. And I said, look, if you decide you are going to open your doors just to professional chefs, fine by me. You're taking money from people who aren't chefs. They have a right to know how your food tastes. It's, you know, there is something that happens a bit with um, cliques. And as I say, I love restaurants and I admire chefs, but, there's, but there can come a time when this unquenchable desire for novelty 
can really not make for the supper you want to eat. Mm. And um, I, as I say, that I felt I was there. You know, I was a punter. I was going to the restaurant. I, I didn't, you know, I paid for my meal. I said what I thought of it. And I think that that matters because otherwise everyone, it gets, such, it gets to be such an incestuous group that people are, they're friends with the chefs, they go to their houses, they like this, and you never really know whether, I mean, I, I, you don't know if, if that's the case. And as I say, you know, I am friends with some chefs. I don't <laughs> review restaurants anymore. Um, I like the way their minds work often, and I love seeing them cook. But that doesn't mean that those of us who eat their food, who haven't worked in professional kitchens, don't have a right um, to offer a dissenting voice. Is there a sort of team chef and team home cook? I mean, sometimes... There used to be, but there's much less so. And I've found that, on the whole, the really talented, great chefs completely understand about home food, and they love it, and it's what they like eating. And perhaps... The, the, the second and third tier are the ones who are immensely contemptuous. Who are the awful ones? Name them. And we'll boycott them. <laughs> I'm not that kind of a person. I know, but I just wanted to ask to see if you might slip just a tiny bit. And also, I might not even rem remember their names. So, <laughs> uh, um, you know, but, 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 the thing, but the thing is that there is a, there is a difference. And I love the theatre mm. of a restaurant. I love... You know, going out for dinner is a great treat. And it's about various things. It's about how warm the people who work in the restaurant are, the view, the feel of it. I, I'm not sure, you know, so many different things. So, do you go for things in restaurants that you wouldn't make yourself because, um, or more complicated things? I mean, is that the way you... Or things that would things? make my kitchen smell too much. Right. Or my friend and co-author, Wendy Sharp, says that she, um, when she orders out, whether it's takeaway or she goes out, she likes to order something fried because she can't be bothered frying things. Yes. You can't get the proper crispness if you're not really out with the thermometers and the double frying. And yes. Blah, blah, blah. And sometimes you... Yes. So something that needs to be at a much higher temperature than I can get it at. Mm. Something that I'm not patient enough to something make. Something sous vide. I know, I don't know, <laughs> yes. So, I, Is that over yet? Is sous vide over yet? Well, I don't really know, I'm glad to say, because I don't, I'm not into the whole sous vide world, mm. and I suppose it's just sort of trickled down and it's gone... Everywhere. I just worry that a food that needs to be laminated first is. is Although, can I just say, I did get a laminating machine once and I greatly enjoyed laminating. It was laminating, you know, schedules, children's homework schedules, notes. I've even got some yoga moves laminated with me because laminating is great fun. That is the classic behaviour from a laminator honeymoon period person. Yeah, I know. Like so, laminating is fun. Yeah. But, yes, I agree. I don't really want to be laminating my food. Although I can see that if you get those vacuum bags, yeah. that would be good. You know, when that would, I could see, see, look, the difficulty is I do love a gadget, but I have got so wise to myself that I know, I mean, I actually haven't been tempted by the sous vide machine, but I know if I got it, it would just be, you know, having to head its way to the charity shop before mm. long. Although, you know, I once compiled my kitchen gadget hall of shame, but even oh. since that time, I bought a, 
electric deep fat turkey fryer, which I've never used. Well, come on, that's perfectly understandable. Do you have a do you have a sort of Moby Dick gadget that you know you have ten thousand versions of, but nothing's quite right? I ask because I have a real problem with juliening. I, I really oh, never I found know, the perfect julienne. I have not found the perfect julienne. I have ordered many, even one from Japan. Ah, and but I think the trouble is of this: them. half of them cut my finger off, and the other half just make it all mushy and it's not I know, quite the right no, that age. Is not good. They used to be um, an attachment to a food process that you could get, and I find I can't get it anymore. Mm. There was a, that obviously that we're going back in time when the food processor was first introduced, when that you know, the, the heyday of the puree and the julienne. Mm. Um, I think that that is because you and I are probably not safe around mandolins. No, just the scars. Uh, and what happens is, I buy a mandolin. I think this time is going to be different. I use it. I sever a digit, I, I, I swear at it, I put it in the bin, and then later I buy one. another one thinking no, it's I going know. to be fine, and I it know. never is. But anyway. I know. Well, we, perhaps we, you and I should start a uh, sort of two-pronged attack to get a Julienne attachment uh, for a process. Let's have a Kickstarter or whatever one of those things <laughs> no, is. We could design right. our own. We no, could. But, the re- but the thing is then, I suppose what this tells you is you don't absolutely need to be Julienning. I d- what happens is, <laughs> is that... It's not what I'm getting. <laughs> but you could do small amounts by hand. I know, but... Oh. You can have a really small amount. And you don't... How many, you know... I want Vietnamese family qu- quantity. I want, you know... I want a lot. Well, that you can do, in, as it were, by... By putting, cutting things up and just finally slicing them off. I know, but I want a Julienne kohlrabi. That's what I'm... T- I'm oh, yeah, well, that's... Yes, when I can see that might pose a problem. Yeah. Um, look, I feel like this conversation is really like a large shaggy dog that keeps sort of oh. bounding off. But I feel, uh, nicely, I'm, I think. I feel sure it's my fault. No, no. Because I... I think it's I, both responsible. I'm a kind of... Um, a bit of a digression diva. On and on and on I go. It's perfectly fine. But I want to just yank on the leash slightly mm-hmm. um, because um, all this talk about chefs and home cooks reminds me that there is, there is a bit of a gender element to all of this because yes. chefs are still mainly blokes. Um, and I heard a statistic or some sort of figure um, mentioned on a Women's Hour um, broadcast that you did not long ago um, about the number of cookbooks that are published by men and women in, say, Italy, for instance, where there's mm. only eight cookbooks published by women or something ridiculous. Um, chefs tend more to be men. Home cooks tend overwhelmingly in just about every country um, to be women. I think that's changing a lot, mm. I would say. Um, from, I was, among my friends, I would say that it's, it splits quite a lot between um, the, the men. Most men seem to be doing the cooking, or at least certainly, I would say, maybe not most of them, but half, 40 to 50%. And among I, what are called millennials, mm. I think the divide is completely even. However, I do think you're right about that's why, why home cooking was looked down on. I think there were two reasons. I think that uh, chefs were male, and therefore, Obviously, what they did was art, and what women did was to, was kind of not worthy of paying attention to. But I unfortunately think that that didn't help. It doesn't help when people deride cooking for being kind of throwback, uh, 
behavior in women because of course you've got to you've got to investigate why it's all right to denigrate any activity which has been traditionally associated with uh, you know the f female behavior um, because it had to be I don't think women have a, any more of a natural inclination towards cooking although well, apparently, we, we are better tasters. We have more taste buds than men. Mm. I don't know if this is true. I mean, it's just a, a hypothesis I've seen. Um, but I also think there is... It's, uh, it's, it's, so I think it's, a, it's, it's a, sort of a sexist argument, but I also think it's, it's a... I don't know how to put this without... I sound like I'm uh, enormously radical, and I hope I do, really. But anyway, I think it's a capitalist thing, which is that because chefs were men and were being paid because it was paid work traditionally if you were a chef it was valued whereas because women worked in the home and weren't actually paid that was therefore not to be valued and I think that's a very dangerous way of looking at it well, generally. It in all sorts of spheres doesn't it? I mean if yes. I pay someone to vacuum my house it's worth X amount an hour but if I do it myself it's not worth anything at all which is um, one of those weird little glitches in the system. Yes although I don't know work. that you know I think also because the person you're going to be paying is likely to be a woman that is also still considered not creditable, creditable work. I don't know. You know, I, I, I'm I'm very aware that you know you can't dislocate um, attitudes from their historical eras, but you can analyse them mm -hmm. and you can see whether you think they're still in play. And I do think it's um, it is very difficult if work that women do. And this is, as I say, I think it is changing with cooking and I think that, but I think still it is considered, um, everything is considered more important if you're getting paid for it. And I find it really odd sometimes. I mean, I, I, I don't want, whether, people, whether women change their name or not when they get married is, is no particular business of mine. On, you know, whether you, whether you do or you don't, the chances are you have got a man's surname. So, but what I find very, very upsetting is when someone will say to me, oh, well, yes, but you were writer, you, so you had a name to keep up, and they, women think that if your name isn't in the public sphere, then it doesn't really matter. Hmm. And I think that's linked to the same thing about if, if you're paid for something, it must be valued more. It's sort of like naming something or paying something. I, I don't know, and I, I just think that... Um, and if you tie that into this age of celebrity and uh, reality TV and these sort of social media images everywhere, I think that it, I mean, we're going quite away from food, but I think it does, uh, it does make a lot of people feel their, their life doesn't have uh, value because if it's not seen and... It, seen on some public forum and that's that can't be healthy it's understandable but it can't be healthy one of your most influential books how to be a domestic goddess was all about um looking at the unseen i suppose wasn't mm. it about glorifying that tradition of home cooking that oh, about baking is yeah yeah just baking really but i mean there was a lot of 
I mean, there was a school of thought when you published that book mm. um, that said that you know you were you were glorifying 1950s woman. Exactly. So that's on. what I said. So that's when I did feel. Mm. Look, one money. If you only have to see the book to realise it was a very ironic title. Um, but so people still call you the domestic. I know. Goddess. Does that drive you crazy? I've, I brought it upon myself, so I can't say it does, but what I really find hard is the self-styled domestic goddess. Oh, painful self-styled. Um, oh, yeah. And I, you know, I made it clear I don't think that, but what I... Anyway, so I don't think... It's so, or, can I say very long, I don't like the term gastroporn being used against me when I coined the phrase in how to eat about something, something entirely other, but never mind. Um, as I say, I bring these things on myself and it doesn't really matter. But I do think, for me, that was a sort of a personal thing when I discovered baking, having always thought the world divided into bakers and cooks and I was a cook. So I loved that. I, and I do think it's interesting. I, um, and... and it, it taps into something in human beings, this need for transformation, because uh, of all forms of cooking, baking is the most alchemical. You know, it's so extraordinary to, to, to believe this transformation that happens. But, so I'm interrupting you, but I think what you were going to say... Please. Uh, what, anyway, <laughs> carry on. I'm just interesting to, interesting yeah. to see what you now say. So, all right. Well, no, I was going to, so in other words, it, it, whether it's a sort of a retrograde act, but I also at the time completely understood that because a lot of people, a, a lot of women on the whole wrote columns about it and having not seen the book. And I thought that would exactly what I would have done if I was still writing a column. <laughs> so I didn't feel so completely fair. We have this organisation in Australia called the Country Women's Association and it's, yeah, uh-huh, yeah, shout out. Um, and it's a great organisation, and it's an old organisation, and it's having a real resurgence in Australia from young women. Like the Women's Institute in yes, the UK. It's, yeah, but a, a, quite a, you know, a regional sort of institution. Mm -hmm. But it's a deeply feminist organisation, I think, even though um, people's idea of it is as some sort of fusty, scone-swapping organisation. Mm -hmm. But I mean, it's all about women, often in remote areas, getting together and assisting each other under their own steam mm -hmm. through whatever's going on in their lives and mm -hmm. supporting each other through food, which is actually quite a, a radical concept in yes. some ways. And um, I remember reading some of the commentary and um, debate around how to be a domestic goddess when it was published, and, um, and I remember reading you saying that it was a feminist book because it, and I'm probably horribly paraphrasing and how fortunate that you are right here and able to correct me I probably can't remember, but carry um, on. No, but you, uh, from what I recall, your um, argument was that um, a sort of a, a, a cultural horror of baking among feminists had kind of deprived a generation of women of the pleasures of um, that particular pastime. Yes, I think what I, I don't know, I think that I, I felt what had happened was more that, and quite understandably, that a generation of women, often raised by women whose mothers themselves had fought to escape uh, drudgery or in domestic enslavement, quite rightly wanted to steer their daughters away from the kitchen. And I noticed in a lot of my contemporaries that a, a lot of my girlfriends were 
very ill at ease in the kitchen and I felt that no human being should be ill at ease in a kitchen mm -hmm. and it should become a place where whether you know male or female you would want to be and and I still feel that and I also feel that provided you're not forced to cook against your will um, uh, I, d I do really believe that it seems to me to be very strange to want to leave the means of your own survival to someone else. Mm. And I don't understand why, if you're a man or a woman, you would feel happy not being able to feed yourself. Do you feel, looking back over the years since you published that book, that you have changed, or you can take the more modest option of saying that there has been a change in the way women think about cooking in your homeland? Well, I certainly think that, you know, when I published that, when I, when I said I wanted to do that book, everyone said, you cannot do a baking book. No one bakes. Um, and that's why I want to do it now. You know, baking, you, mm. you, can't, you can't move in a bookstore. Not that there are that many bookstores left, but alas, there were no laughing matter, it's a sad thing, but still, you know, you, you can't move for baking titles. So, yeah, I think it did make a difference, but, you know, I also was, in some sense, you know, I had noticed in New York, uh, you know, that there were, that cafes had cupcakes, and that interests me. Mm. So, you know, we're all part of, we're all part of something, and it's, we all come to these ideas kind of simultaneously, maybe. Now, we are just horrendously running short of time. We've got about 10 minutes left. And got more questions? I do. I've got hundreds more. I mean, I really, meant we, could have a, we could have a lock-in. But um, we do have social media questions, and I'll, I'll ask another one of those in a moment. Um, but one, um, one very widely commented upon aspect of your new book is that um, it has um, lots of healthy recipes in it, right? And I know that the word healthy and the word clean... Yeah, but I both... understand what you yeah. mean. So is that a change in you or is it a change in what you perceive people's appetites to be at the moment? There's an awful lot of that in all my books. It's just maybe it stands out more now, maybe because... <laughs> I don't know, you know, for example, one of my books has got a whole chapter called Temple Food, as I in love my, that chapter. my body God. is a temple. So I've always done these things. I think what it is is that people have, maybe this is true, people think that all I do is sit around and eat chocolate cake. <laughs> so the fact is... And then order more sheets. More sheets! And, um, no, I think I have to wash them. I can't be ordering more sheets. I'll tell you what, there's a very good chocolate cake in your new book, and it's entirely vegan chocolate cake. Yes. And it's fiendish. It's so delicious. And I guess I'm rather excited by that too. I don't, but the reason I don't call it vegan in the title is that I feel that it has, it's just wonderful on its own. But so I feel I've always had a mixture of, uh, you know, there's been chocolate cake and there has yes. been, you know, lots of fish and broccoli, as it were. <laughs> and I like both. And I really try not to have that hierarchy this is good and this is bad or this is better, you know. I really try and eat the food I want to eat or that I feel is right at the time. Right, but you know the best-selling cookbooks in Australia right now, and I'm sure this is mm. um, true wherever good food is eaten, um, are the ones that are telling you how to give something up or how mm. to um, 
observe a set of rules, for uh, instance, yeah, you know, don't uh, eat anything that no, a Paleolithic right. man would not have stumbled across yes. in the course of his daily life. Exactly. Tell me about that one. Yes, I know. Well, I think that has been discredited, but obviously, look, if you give... Careful, we're in Sydney. Food, if you can't if say paleo's been discredited. People get cross and they're very hungry, so they're, you know, lean oh, and, <laughs> and like, muscular. Now, it... Look, the point is, uh, if you start focusing on what you eat and, you, and gi giving up certain food groups, you, will so, you might eat less, you might feel better if you've been overeating, and all these things hold true, especially, you know, it depends on how you started off eating. But what also, I suppose, what these books also implicitly promise is eat this and you will be immortal. You won't get a disease, you won't die. And that, I'm afraid, no diet can, can, can bring, can, can give you. So I think, look, I want to feel well. I'm my children's only parent. I, I also want to feel that I've got energy. But I don't think that if I, you know, give up uh, gluten and never, uh, never again have, you know, a piece of cake that it's going to be plain sailing and I have nothing to worry about. I mean, and some people cannot eat these things. There is a huge rise in food mm -hmm. intolerances and I, I, am, I understand why a bit more now, but nevertheless, I do think at the base of it is, you know, that's always been the human holy grail, which is eternal life. <laughs> you may as well just, you know, enjoy eating in this one, I think. Some of these diets and ways of eating, though, take on almost moral, biblical mm. proportions. They're about the struggle between good and evil, Indeed. and some ingredients are evil, and so on. And they yeah. change, of course, because something yes. terrible one minute will be terrific the next. Yes. But it, it's about control, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's a struggle between, you know, controlling food or being controlled by food. Yes. Has there ever been any doubt in your relationship with food about who wears the pants? Um, do you know, I think that... I would say that I have, when I, when I was younger, I think I'm, I found f food more problematic, both not liking to eat when I was mm. very small and uh, then uh, feeling at some stage perhaps my greed got the better of me. But you know, t two things have kept me, relatively speaking, normal. And one is that my mother had a very, very... Uh, unhappy relationship with food, and I, I didn't want to be that person. Um, and did you realise and spot that early on, do you think? I, well, she, I do remember, she died when she was 48, and I remember her saying, when she knew she was terminal, which is, you know, wasn't, that, you know, she, it was the first time she ever ate without um, anxiety. 
And if you have to wait till you've all terminally ill to allow yourself to eat, I mean, that made a huge impression on me. And also because also I have witnessed quite a few people dying of cancer, I don't equate thinness necessarily mm. with health. So for me, it's, it's slightly different. The, I, I, I think obviously there are times I have, you know, especially as a young woman, I think I, I struggled more, but I think even then I tried as best as I could never to, not to, not to ban food because I, then I know, because I've got quite an obsessive nature, all I do would be to think about it and want to eat it and try as much as possible to have a, as healthy a relationship as I could with food. But as in with all relationships, I have my good patches and my bad patches. But I've been on a good patch for quite a long time now. Do you ever run out of things to cook? I mean... Oh, I'm incredibly boring for weeks on end. Right. But do you ever walk into that kitchen and have that moment that I have all the time? When I mean, I cook all the time, just obsessively. Yeah. And then sometimes I walk into the kitchen and think, what do I cook again? I can't, I can't think of one thing that I cook. What do I cook? I can't think of anything. Do you have those sort of mental blocks ever? Sorry, I'm... Well, I'm... I don't have that... But I do sometimes feel that I can get stuck in a rut, but I have ways mm. of overcoming that. I mean... What are they? Well, but, well overcoming the rut. Mm. Well, what I started doing is like getting a box of vegetables rather than choosing, because I thought... So then I had to think a bit creatively mm. and suddenly think, oh, well, what am I going to do with this? I've got to think of something new. Otherwise, I get the same vegetables all the, you know, all the time and... Lovely though that is, I just thought, no, I just can't do that. And, but I, I don't mind too much repetition. I mean, that's partly what makes us feel safe in the world. You know, when, when children are small, they love having the same stories read to them all the time. And if they get start watching, you know, a DVD or whatever, they, they want to watch it over and over again. And when they know and the so story, they, then they know when you're missing bits oh, as well. It's just shocking. But... So I think that is also part of, you know, who we are and what we do. But every now and then I do like to you know, do something completely different. And I do, you know, sometimes it just means not really, just not buying the same ingredients. But that can be hard in itself. Now, I've so vilely ignored our social media correspondence okay. that I feel I have to um, compensate by throwing it in. And I feel like I talk, I, I talk too much. I go on and on. You're, you're right. Sorry. It's her fault, social media. Not mine. <laughs> Direct all your... No, don't, obviously. Um... Now, uh, look, look there's, there's one here from Felicity Stewart, um, which I, I think is representative of, of particularly a lot of women who, who admire you and who have watched your career. Um, dear Nigella, uh, this is quite a, a tough question, but, you know, I'm going to throw you at it. As a woman of great poise and stoicism, uh, what are the biggest lessons you have learned uh, from building your beautiful food empire? And what are your words of advice for aspiring female leaders and entrepreneurs? Well, I don't have a food empire at all. It's just me at home with... <laughs> um, <laughs> but, you know, um, with one full-time person working for me. It's a bit empire-ish. So it's what? So I don't... So my feeling is, I mean, it's... it's I feel you just have to go ahead and do things and do things that you want to do and you think are right because, you know, clearly we all make mistakes so you may as well uh, make mistakes doing what you feel you should be doing rather than make mis making mistakes feeling that you're doing what other people want you to be doing. 
I mean, that's... I really think you just have to, just to be your... To try and be yourself. It takes a long time. It takes a long time. You have to work out who you are. And I feel that's, that's a life's work. You seem to have a capacity not to be annoyed by things. I mean, I was interested to hear you say that you were terribly cross about people calling you the domestic goddess. I didn't get terribly cross. Yeah, I couldn't. I did bring it on myself. You're not much of a grudge holder then, I guess. Try not to be. Mm. I try not to be a grudge holder. I also feel that, um, in a way, if you hold grudges, you just make yourself feel so miserable. And... I, I, for, for, look, I don't know how, but I managed to forget these things in the same way as I, as someone who used to be quite thin-skinned and can get quite upset, I'm very good about, you know, I don't read reviews of things or I don't, if sometimes I can go down that wormhole if I, you know, someone puts a link on Twitter, but mostly I'm quite strong and I just don't do it. I, I, I feel also that it's so important to be a person who looks out onto the world um, and not be an object that you gaze on yourself. That, that, that would seem to me to be a very wizened and um, desiccated life. Well, I must say, um, having gazed upon you for uh, 90 minutes now, and it went horribly quickly, and that little screen says very threateningly, zero seconds remaining. But it said it for a while. I so. know it has. <laughs> and I can see its little, little shape blinking mm. at me out of my peripheral vision, and now it's probably time for me to obey it. Um, Thank you for coming um, all the way to Australia. As you can see, you have a, a, a ludicrously enthusiastic following here um, who have been following you and admiring you for years, myself included. Um, I love to hear you talk about food and most of all, I love to read you writing about food and I'm so Thank pleased you. that um, in this book, you continue to do it. Um, would you all please... But can, but can I just ask you to, if I could do something really infantile and nerd-like? Because I would love to take a picture of you all. <laughs> Sing! <laughs> do you mind? I don't know if I can get a signal. Cut to your audience. Do okay, it. I do, because this is such a thrill for me. Form yourself with your bodies into the world um, Nigella. I can do it. Um, I'm going to have to do it on video, aren't I? I can't do panorama in a circle. Anyone know video. whether I can do panorama in a circle? Yes or no? Tell me, someone. Video. It has to be a video. video? Uh, thank you. Okay. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so 